listening to the Northside Christian Church Sermon Podcast. These teachings are recorded at our weekly Sunday morning gatherings in Springfield, Missouri. For more about our church, service times, and how to connect, visit northsidechristianchurch.net. Well, hey, Northside, I know it's been a huge weekend for a lot of you. You've been hosting family or friends or traveling, and I know that just kind of has its own fatigue factor to that. And so there's been a lot going on. Some of you had successful hunts. Maybe you're like my son. He was processing his deer meat and doing that this weekend. I know others of you, if you're Fair Grove, like you're competing in state semifinal games, you know, if you're from Republic, you maybe went to see an exciting one as well yesterday. So just so much has been going on this weekend. I know some of you were off work. You actually got a break. You got a holiday weekend and you would just think that coming in on a Sunday morning like this, you would just come in refreshed and somehow you're like, I'm pretty sure I was off for two days. Why am I so exhausted and tired after my weekend? And I know how it goes. Sometimes rest uh, is, doesn't mean equal time off. And in fact, we're going to be getting to that a little bit later today. But I, I want to address an elephant in the room when it comes to the texts that we're going to read today. In fact, both of them in Colossians and Ephesians, we've been going through the book of Colossians, both texts are going to address slaves and their relationship to their masters and masters and their relationships to their slaves. And there's something about when you come to a text like this where it's hard to hear what God is actually wanting you to hear from these words if you feel like you're just mentally stuck in this realm of asking questions like, why would Paul in these texts or God through these texts address masters and how they should treat slaves and slaves and how they should interact with their masters and not just come out just condemning outrightly slavery in and of itself? I mean, why would why would Paul not just come out immediately swinging against what we see in slavery so much? Just oppose it, condemn it. Speak out against it. Does the Bible approve of slavery? I mean, are we just pro-slavery here because we read Scripture? And I just want to give some context to the text. I think it could be helpful, actually, how we apply what we're about to read today and what we're about to see. And so there's several layers to this. And I think one of the first things that is important to acknowledge is that, first of all, when we read slaves in this context, in the Greco-Roman world, that, first of all, that is not the same as slavery as we think of it today that developed in the wake of the African slave trade. Like, there are some significant differences here that I think is important to know, first of all. Like, for example, slavery in Paul's time, it was not race-based. It was seldom lifelong. It was more like what we would call indentured servitude. It was one of those things where they would enter into it voluntarily oftentimes so that they could repay a debt or so that they could have promise of some future payment or so they could be treated like a hired hand and have resources and provision for them. And so that's very different than the way that we think of it today. Michael DeFazio says that slaves in the ancient world were often trusted with different kinds of tasks depending on their abilities and their education or their training. In fact, some of them were highly educated. Some of them, in fact, were physicians or doctors. Some of them provided discipline in, with the children in the home. Some of them not only were well-educated, but they provided the education of the children. 
And there were even some slaves who would choose to become bond servants for life, meaning that they were treated like family in the home. It was, it was a good situation and provided for in such a way that they would say, I want to do this for the rest of my life. And they would pledge themselves to that master, the owner of that home. That's a little different than oftentimes the way we think of slavery today. However, as Michael DeFazio points out in his book, More Jesus, oftentimes slaves were still considered property. They were, they were still existing in a broken and wounded world, but there was still harshness on all of that. It was not generally desirable. It was just different from what we think. Number two is this. Paul's, if, if Paul were to protest against the institution of slavery in these verses of, of what he's, he's not trying to do in this text, that wasn't his motive or his goal in this part of the text. Had he done that, Michael DeFazio says, it'd be kind of as if he were protesting against the internet. Like, it's happening. And so Paul's approach really had more to do with, if you are a slave and you become a Christian, how should you interact with your masters? If you're a master and you become a Christian, how should you interact with those that you're over in your home? He's addressing what it looks like for people who have been set apart to Jesus, who have their minds set on heavenly things. What does it look like for you when you interact with those in your life? Third, it should be important to note that Paul does undermine the institution of slavery, even in his other writings. Like when you get to the book of Philemon, which is written to the churches in Colossae. We're reading through the book of Colossians right now. And Philemon was written to the churches in Colossae, gently demanding that a slave owner that was there see a runaway slave as an equal, as a brother. You know, think Galatians 3, 28, where we're all one in Christ Jesus. Like, think of him as a brother and receive him. This slave's name was Onesimus. And Onesimus actually is delivering the letter that we're reading right now, the book of Colossians, to the church. And so he is highly regarded by Paul and the, his slave owner in the church. Paul is directly speaking to him and the way that he speaks to him is radical for that time. It's interesting to note that in church history, Onesimus, who was a slave and became a brother and in church history tradition became a bishop, uh, they believe in Ephesus. And so this is Paul's wording when it comes to this. It doesn't immediately destroy slavery but it changed the relationship between slave and master where we now treat one another as if we are slaves to Christ where masters treat their slaves like brothers and where slaves are now viewed as freed men freed people in Christ we were to treat with respect justly fairly in fact paul would even say in 1 Corinthians that a christian slave was a free man in the lord that a master was a slave to Christ And Paul's words to masters in both of these texts were pretty radical in their day. And Paul even told the the Christian slaves to obtain their freedom if they could in 1 Corinthians 7, 21. So here's the bottom line. When you look at this text today, where Paul is instructing masters to treat their slaves right and fair without threatening them, how much more should that be true of employers today? And if he tells slaves you should work hard and consistently and obediently as if you're working for the Lord and if possible find meaning and and enjoyment in your work, how much more true is that of those who are employees today? And so whether you're in high school working a little part-time job or you 
work part-time or you're full-time in corporate America working your whatever it is, 50, 60, 70 hours a week. We need Paul's words in our world to help us navigate a broken world when it comes to our relationships with employee and employer, with those who are over us and those who are working for them. And And the reason we need this is because we work in a wounded world. And there is often a strain between management and labor. I mean, in our work relationships, we see conflict all the time. Some people who work the hardest, they don't make the most money. So there's some bad people who inherit great jobs. Well, many good, faithful workers are struggling to have those jobs. There's some employers that just destroy human dignity. There's conflict. We see it all the time between management and labor. Maybe you heard about the guy who was in a a hot air balloon. And he he had told a friend that he would meet him, but he was already an hour late. In fact, he was lost. And he saw a gal down below, so he descended And he came down to where he was about 30 feet above the ground, maybe a little less. And there from his hot air balloon, he shouted out to her that that he was lost. He didn't know where he was. He was already an hour late to his appointment with his friend. He was trying to find out. So he he asked her, you know, know, where am I at? And she's like, well, you're in a hot air balloon, for starters. And you're about 30 feet above the ground. And and just so you know, this is is 40 degrees west latitude. And you're about 60 degrees north longitude. And so that's approximately where you are right now. He said, you must be an engineer. She said, how did you know? And he said, well, it's pretty simple. Everything you told me is technically correct, but I have no idea what to make of your information. And the fact is, I'm still lost. Frankly, you've been not much help at all. And if anything, you just delayed my trip. She responded, you must be in management. He said, how did you know? She said, well, you don't know where you are or where you're going. You've risen to where you are due to a large quantity of hot air. You made a promise which you've no idea how to keep. And the fact is you're in exactly the same position that you were in before we met, but somehow now it's my fault. <laughs> and all working people just say, exactly. I mean, we, we experience this, the conflict, the tension in relationships and in our different roles, and it's difficult, but... As Paul will write here in Colossians, people who've been made alive in Jesus, people who have set their minds on things above, not on earthly things, it it should affect our interpersonal relationships and especially our working relationships. Regardless of the role that you play, how we relate to each other matters. And so with all of that in mind, giving some context to the text, let's read it together. Colossians 3, 22 through chapter 4, verse 1. Here's what we read. Slaves... Obey your earthly masters in everything and do it, not only when their eye is on you and to curry their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters. Since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward, it is the Lord Christ you're serving. Anyone who does wrong will be repaid for their wrongs. And there is no favoritism. Masters, provide your slaves with what is right and fair because you know that you also have a master in heaven. Ephesians chapter 6, 5 through 9 is the parallel text for this. And Ephesians says this, Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Obey them not only to win their favor when their eye is on you, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart. Serve wholeheartedly, as if you were serving the Lord, not people, 
because you know that the Lord will reward each one for whatever good they do, whether they are slave or free. And masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Do not threaten them, since you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no favoritism with him. Tim Keller, in his book, Every Good Endeavor, has a lot of great things to say about this. If you, in fact, if you don't have that book, it is a great book as it, works, as it relates to work and our working relationships and, and the Lord. And so I'm going to share several things he shared from this. And of course, when you look at Colossians and Ephesians, the very first directive is to the employees, as to those who are the laborer, those doing this work. And the text says this, employees, be wholehearted in your work. He says it this way, work with sincerity of heart. You're not to do the minimum amount of work to just get by without getting in trouble. You're not to do your hard work only when supervisors' eyes are observing you when they're on you. Instead, you should be fully engaged in your work, doing it wholeheartedly, getting your mind, heart, body to do the best possible job you can do with the work that you've been given. Why? Because as Christians, we have a new mindset. Because if you're a follower of Jesus, we got a completely new mindset. We work as if we're serving the Lord. We're not just working for the people that are giving us instructions. And why? Because you have this unimaginable reward in Christ. The fact is, we are often so short-sighted when it comes to our work. We just want to know, how much am I making per hour? What is my salary with benefits compared to the work I'm doing? And and we just look at that cost-benefit analysis of what we're doing, and we even sometimes will base the level of output we're going to give based on the input we're getting from that. And it's so short-sighted because Paul is saying, don't you know that you serve Jesus Christ and he is the one that you're seeking to please. And if you would work for Jesus, you're going to receive a reward that you can't imagine. This is going to far exceed whatever benefit you get from your work right here and right now. Like God is watching you. And, and when, as God sees your work, he is going to reward you. If you would work as if you're serving the Lord, you would be freed from both overwork and underwork. You'd be freed from both. You'd be freed from the greed, the acclaim, the constant seeking of approval from others. You'd be freed from that workaholism, which is what it leads to. And on the other hand, you'd be freed from lazy, unproductive, sloppy, and slothful work. You're freed from both when you realize I'm serving the Lord and working for him. That has huge implications in your life. And Paul will lay it out both in Ephesians and in Colossians this way. If you would work as if you're serving the Lord, you will show respect to those who are over you and you will work in the fear of the Lord. Fear not as in like terror of God, like scared in that way, but fear and awe and reverence of him wanting to please him. It's like in Psalm 130 verse 4 when it teaches it that as the more you experience God's mercy and his forgiveness, the more you're in awe of him and want to please him and serve him. And you work out of respect for him, not wanting to dishonor him or for him to be displeased with you. You don't want to grieve God. So you show respect to him and you'll work out of fear for the Lord. And if you would work as if you're serving the Lord, you will work with sincerity of heart. That means you will, you will work ethically, not dishonestly. It means that you won't take advantage of people or your customers or employers or your co-workers. 
You will also work hard at all times. Not just when their eye is on you to win their favor. You will work hard at all times. And, and Paul's problem here with faking it in our work and not actually working hard is because the Heavenly Father is watching. He's watching us. And so those decisions we make where I'm going to work hard only when people are watching, it goes away if we're working for the Lord. In fact, three times Paul repeats, serve the Lord indicating the importance of knowing who you're working for. It is not for just a CEO. It's not just for your employer. It's not just for that stock. It's not just for that, b- that board of trustees. Or It's not for that. It's Jesus that you serve. And number four, if you would work as if you're serving Jesus, you will view all good work as meaningful and spiritual. All good work is meaningful and it's spiritual, regardless of what it is. I love the way Martin Luther described this when he said, in the Lord's Prayer, when you, when you pray as Jesus prayed, our, our Father, give us this day our daily bread. Give us this day our daily bread. He, he says, well, how do you get your daily bread? It's the work of the farmer and the truck driver and the baker and the retailer that brings us our food. That when we do work, we are working not only for God, but we're working to serve other people. This is one of the ways that God shows his care for us. It's through our work. As we work, we become the answer to the prayer that other people are praying because we are helping to provide that daily bread that they are asking God for. This is true of all work, good work in our lives. Even our government officials or even our police officers who work to ensure that injustice is not hindering or preventing that daily bread from coming to us. That that is important work. It's an answer to our prayers. This is why whenever you watch live PD, you know, you're like, thank you, God. Like you, you, you say another prayer, thank you, God, that, that I don't have to be the one that deals with that. And thank you, Lord, that that's, that is not where I am. And all of a sudden you're like, wait, that's my house. You know, it's, yeah, it happens everywhere. And your house has probably been on live PD a lot if you live in this county. That's why we're thankful to those who serve and work. This is all a gift from God. So Martin Luther says, God's loving care, it comes to us largely through the labor of others. Work is a major instrument of God's providence. It sustains the human world. And if we do not find any spiritual meaning in our work, then we're just going to live this dual life, a dual life where we we don't connect with what we're doing on Sunday mornings to what we're doing the rest of the week. We must see the work that we do as a way to love God and to love and serve other people. Which leads to this, number five. When you serve as if you're working for Jesus, then you will view your work as a way to serve and bless other people in your life. You're not just using your, you're not using work for self-gain. Dorothy Sayers, she actually calls it heresy. When work is not an expression of our creative energy, in the service of society, but only something we do in order to get more money or to experience more leisure. She says, that is heresy when you work and it's for you. And you don't see it as contributing and creating to provide for others. She says, if doctors practice medicine, not primarily to relieve suffering, but to make a living, cure of the patients, the byproduct, and when that happens, somehow the joy of healing is lost and much of the motivation for that healing process is lost. 
She says, if the lawyer accepts briefs, not because they have a passion for justice, but because they just want to make money through it, then people will be taken advantage of, and he or she could actually make more money by doing an incomplete work and then charging more often. If we are not using work to serve others, then work just becomes selfish. We turn inward. The purpose of work is to serve and exalt something way beyond ourselves. And when you are serving the Lord Jesus, you begin to realize that. I am working for someone and something far beyond myself. And God can use my abilities and my work to bless and to serve others. And if you have to choose between a job that pays more or benefits people more, you may go for the one that benefits people more, especially if it, not only if it pays less, but especially if you're great at it. And it's making a contribution to this world. That means that all jobs are not merely so-called helping, not just those that are helping professions jobs, are fundamentally so that we can love and serve other people. You should consider, how can your abilities and opportunities be of greatest service to other people? That's how you can love your neighbors and do a job well done. So we serve for Him. And that never stops. It's the moment of everything we do until the very end. And I know there's a chance that as we read through Colossians 3 and we start talking about employer-employee relationship and, and we're applying, you know, what it looks like to have our, our lives set apart to Jesus. And, and in recent weeks, we talked about, you know, what does that look like in marriage? What's that look like in parenting? And this week, Paul's going to talk about what it looks like in, in working relationships. You know, how, how does this apply? Some of you may be like, I'm I'm retired. Like, man, I got out of that and I could not be more thrilled. Like, I am done with the work thing, you know. And you may be excited about that, but really, we, we don't retire from work. We just retire maybe from careers, maybe from doing a, a certain type of job. job. But we, we never retire from working or contributing or serving or blessing others or using whatever gifts God's given us to bless other people. There, there's, that's, there's not an attitude in those who are serving the Lord Jesus, who just say, I'm done, I'm retired, uh, it, it's over with. I, I've heard at times people who will say in ministry, you know, uh, hey, I'm, I'm done and, and it's, t- it's time for some young people to step up. Or I'm, I'm going to let someone else do this and, as if it's one or the other and kind of step out of ministry. And they're not engaged or involved in, in serving the Lord anymore. And that's just not an attitude that, Jesus allows us to have throughout the scriptures or throughout the New Testament. Like we don't retire from being contributors to the Lord or to his kingdom or in service to other people. We, we never retire from that. We're, we're always serving. In fact, in, in a healthy church, you have old and young serving together. Not, not separate from each other, but together. That's what a healthy church looks like. When we serve alongside one another and we bless each other in this way. It's not an either-or mentality. We worship together. We're on mission together. We help each other. You know, in October of this year, a group of us went to the Art of Teaching conference. And uh, it it had to do with teaching and and preaching. And it it was fantastic. It was an incredible conference. This is the group of us that went. This picture up here behind me. And 
And uh, in that group, you see people like uh, myself and Alan Tiger and Kevin Punch and John Presco, Garrett Holly, some of our teaching team. And, but there's others in our church like Wyatt King's working with our, our college life and Molly Button and Annie Denny who do a lot of various teachings around here. Ed Holt, our former lead minister here at our church who leads two of our growth groups and helps write curriculum for anyone who wants to use that uh, went along with us. And we, we just had a great time. We were in Franklin, Tennessee at Church of the City. They had this conference there for all of this. It was just a great couple days there. Well, the second day that we were there, uh, the morning session, we were just getting kicked off and this host gets up and, and he says, I want everybody to stand to your feet. So we all stand to our feet. He says, I want to find out today who's the oldest person at the Art of Teaching conference this year. And uh, so anyway, I, we, all, we all stood up. I'm standing right next to Ed. We were sitting by each other all through the conference and I'm like, Ed, you got a chance. Like you got it. Just looking around the room, I'm like, Ed, you got a chance. And uh, so anyway, they start the process, you know, if you're, you know, whatever it was, you know, if you're under 20, you know, if you're 25 and under, if you're 30 and under, I was standing actually quite a long time, just so you know. And, uh, so, but finally I sit down, I think it got to this point. It's like, if you're 67 and under sit down. And so most of the room is, is sitting except for like maybe like six people. And so he just starts going around the room. He's like, how old are you? How old are you? And you start hearing, you know, 68, 70, 71, 73. He gets to Ed Holt and Ed says 75. And the room just like, they were up, they start clapping, they're cheering. He's like, 75. He's like, man, where, are, are you on staff somewhere in a church? He's like, no, I'm retired minister, but I, I teach classes and write some adult curriculum. And he's like, where are you at? Springfield, Missouri. We're at Northside Christian Church. And man, that's it. So anyway, they were just thrilled that a 75-year-old guy would be at the Art of Teaching conference because uh, most of that room was way younger than that. And so they're celebrating him. And he, I was sitting right next to him then at that point, And I'm just like, you know, yeah, I know him. You know, he became like the celebrity of the conference. He did. Because uh, later presenters were talking about saying, man, you got to always learn, always grow. Don't ever quit. You know, if, I hope when I'm 75, and he's pointing at Ed, I'll be here in this place. And then at breaks, he'd have like a line of people waiting to talk to him. And he was like the celebrity of the Art of Teaching conference this year. It was pretty awesome. But also, Ed has a continual attitude that I'm serving the Lord. I'm not working for anybody in particular. So what does that look like? Because I'm serving the Lord. He's constantly contributing. He's constantly giving. He's constantly serving. I, I, I'm, I love people like that. I, I was talking to Tiffany Bloom this week. I said, Tiffany, uh, if you were to look at the hierarchy of age in our children's ministry, who are just a couple people that might be at the top of that category? Like, uh, what would you say? She gave me two names. This is who, who they are right here. So you got Kathy Swope, Karen Hankins, uh, that are still serving in our children's ministry, volunteering in various ways. And, uh, which I, I love to see that. I said, who's the youngest? She said, probably 10, 10 years old. Who's serving with the younger kids, obviously paired with someone older. And I was just thinking about that. How awesome is that to have someone who's closer to 75? Uh, I won't tell you which one that way. Yeah. That way it feels good. Right. If you're 75, and, and then you're 10. There's a 65-year difference between two people who might be serving alongside one another in a children's I don't know that they, they do specifically. But how beautiful is that in the body of Christ that we serve and we work for the Lord and we never give up, we never quit. It may look different in different seasons of life. Some of our roles may change but we continue to serve as, as if we're serving the Lord. This is Paul's word to us as workers, as employees. This is how we serve. But then Paul gives a word to employers. 
If you're the one that's directing or casting vision or giving instructions or giving direction or you're setting the culture of your organizations, he would say this to employers. Employers, conduct yourself as if you are a fellow slave. That's his, his instruction. Ephesians 6, 9, masters are to treat their slaves in the same way that the slaves are to treat their masters with respect. Respect for their needs. And masters, he says, are to abandon the use of threats. Do not threaten them. Fear is not a good motivator. Reject all forms of manipulation and demeaning and terrifying slaves by threats or your workers or your employees, whoever, by threats. And Paul's reason for this, it's kind of a radical attitude during his his time, is that, that we are equal as slaves before the Lord. We are all slaves to our master, the Lord, whom we are equally accountable to him, where there is no favoritism with him. He is not impartial. God treats no one differently, regardless of your class or your role or your education. He doesn't treat you differently. Romans 3 shows that we're all sinners and we are all guilty before God and only saved by grace through faith. We're all saved by the same grace. We are all sinners before him. And because of that, do not think of yourself as a better person. Do not think of yourself somehow better in spiritual condition just because of a different role than your laborers. And so the implications for employers are as follows. Do not use guilt or coercion to motivate people. Fear is not a good motivator anyway. He says you should respect your employees. You should take interest in them as people and their lives, not just their productive work capacity. Do not be condescending or demeaning or haughty because there are no class distinctions with God. Do not abuse your power. Whatever power you have, you can either use it to enhance your own position or make yourself more wealthy. You can use it to be self-serving. But as Paul and Jesus both would teach, you are in a position of leadership for the sake of those you are leading, not the other way around. So you serve well. Your responsibility is to provide justice and fairness to everyone because we all work for an audience of one. In the past, maybe you worked for your parents or peers or to win over your superiors or because you wanted acclaim in in the business community. But as believers, we work for one. We work for our Heavenly Father, for God. He is the one that we work for. He's the one that gives both accountability to our work and joy to our work. We receive both from Him. So you work for Him. No matter who you are, no matter where you are in role in the organization, you may see yourself as as sitting quite a bit higher on the totem pole than someone else, but you are miles from Jesus. He is your master. You serve him. You work for him. And so you treat other people the way he would treat them. So in Colossians 3.23, here's how Paul says it. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters. This applies to every one of you, no matter your role. Whatever you do, you work at it with all your heart as if working for the Lord, not for human masters. Without someone bigger than yourself to work for, your energy is going to be fueled by some of your sinful vices. And when that becomes the motivation for your work, it's going to be unhealthy. Your motivation may be because of envy to get ahead of others. You want what they have and more. Maybe it's, it's pride. It's pride because you want to prove yourself. Or maybe it's greed because you want more or gluttony or pleasure or something else. You may be putting yourself at the center of your life. Why would you do this? 
because you don't see yourself as working for Jesus so you can bless and serve other people. You want what's yours. The worst vices and sins become the, the main animating energy behind your work. And so Paul says in Colossians, so you work for the Lord so that you're doing it for the right reason with the right motive in the right way at the right time for the right purpose. You work as if you're working for the Lord. Here's what will happen. When you work as if you're working for the Lord, it will enable you to work, to avoid the work beneath the work that is so physically and emotionally exhausting. In other words, the reason that you're working. Perhaps what's motivating you is you're just haunted by this work under the work, which is to prove yourself or to save yourself or to gain a sense of worth or to gain identity, whatever it is. The gospel, if it is not directing our work, if it is not at rest in our hearts, we will not be free. We won't be free. We won't experience the reservoir of refreshment that continually rejuvenates us and restores us and renews our passion and gives us a healthy perspective. We've got to work as if we're working for the Lord so that we can avoid all the work under the work that, that so mentally, emotionally exhausts us. And then also, if you work as if you're working for the Lord, it will enable you to work better and rest better. This is another reason for doing it. We not only work better, but we rest better. There is a symbiotic relationship between work and rest. Rested bodies, rested minds, they are more productive in their work. It's better work. They'll do more work. And in Exodus chapter 20, it ties the observance of Sabbath day to God's creation. That God worked for six days, then he rested. And that rhythm is not just for Christians. It is for everyone. It's wired and built into creation itself that we need this. We must rest after our creation. This rhythm of work and rest, it's for everyone. Otherwise, overwork and underwork is the result. And overwork or underwork violates that nature. It leads to breakdown and to chaos. To rest is actually a way to enjoy and honor the goodness of God's creation and our own. And to violate that rhythm of work and rest in either direction leads to chaos in our life and in the world around us. So Sabbath is a celebration of our freedom. Think of it this way, Sabbath, rest. It's a celebration of our freedom. It's a celebration of our design and how God created us. In Deuteronomy chapter 5, when God gives uh, the observance of the Sabbath, it was for God's redemption. He ties the observance to his redemption. How the people were delivered out of Egypt, a place where they were slaves for 400 years. A place where they were seen as nothing more than Pharaoh's brick production system. And they were slaves there. And they had no freedom. They had no rest. It was a place of work, 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 production all the time. And God ties Sabbath rest to the freedom, his deliverance of them out of Egypt. Because Sabbath rest is freedom. It's redemption. And many of you are slaves. And most of you are slaves. Not because of something that's been imposed on you by your employer. Some of you maybe, but not all of you. In fact, probably most of us, it's self-imposed slavery because we haven't learned how work and rest function together. You refuse to do it. It's self-imposed slavery. Your own heart or materialistic culture or exploitive organizations or all the above will be abusing you if you don't have the ability 
to be disciplined in your practice of Sabbath. Sabbath is a declaration of our freedom. You're not a slave to your culture's expectations or to your own insecurities. And it's not until you believe that that you will actually enjoy taking time off and not feel guilty for doing it. Sabbath is a declaration of freedom. Sabbath is also an act of trust. God appointed the Sabbath to remind us that we work and we rest. It's a faithful way to remember that you're not the one that keeps this world running. You're not the one that advances everything forward. You, you fall prey to the temptation to believe that you're holding everything up by your own strength and power and ability. And you're not actually seeing yourself in light of what God says about you. It's an act of trust in God when we rest. And Jesus says this. He says, come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Does this sound ironic? He's telling us that we will find rest if we put his yoke on us, which was tended to be that thing that you worked and grind and carried. And, but he says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy. My burden is light. When Jesus calls us to himself, he knows that we're weary. He knows that we're burdened and that we need rest. His cure is to put his yoke on us instead of the yoke of everyone else that we put on us because only his is light. He is the only boss who will not drive you into the ground. He is the only one that's truly gentle and humble in heart and will give rest for your souls. He is the only audience that does not need your best performance in order to love you and to be satisfied with you and to celebrate you. Why is this? Because Jesus, because in Jesus, his work is finished. Christ has done the work for you. It's finished. In fact, the very definition of a Christian is someone who not only admires Jesus and wants to emulate Jesus, but someone who trusts in the finished work of Jesus in their life. That Jesus has saved them. Jesus has done the work that they could not do. Instead of trusting in their own work, they trust in his work. You see, God was able to rest in Genesis chapter 2. Not only he was able to rest because his creative work was finished. He completed it. And a Christian is able to rest because God's redemptive work is finished in Jesus Christ for all of our lives. We can trust him. We are free of guilt. We are forgiven. And then we are empowered for a new life. We're transformed by the power of Jesus in our lives. He is doing that good work in us. And when the work under the work has been satisfied by Jesus, all that's left for us is to serve the work that's been given to us by our Father. And I know the the problem, the challenge for every one of you is the same problem I struggle with as well. And it's this, it's that that you feel like you, you don't have enough time to get all the work done. You can't accomplish the work because you don't have enough time to get the work done. That's why you feel like you can't rest. What you have to understand is you have all the time you need to do the work God would have you to do. He's given you all the time you need to accomplish the work He is giving you to do. Oftentimes, it's the work we add. It's it's succumbing to the work that someone else wants to put on us, not His work that we succumb to, and we don't trust Him. 
That he's given us all the time we need to do exactly what he wants us to do. But Jesus understood that. He lived his entire life and through his entire ministry, serving wholeheartedly an audience of one, his heavenly father. So much so that Jesus could say in John 17, 4, he could say with this attitude, I've brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. And then in John 19, as he breathed his last on the cross to say, it is finished. He finished the work the heavenly father gave him to do. And that brought honor and pleasure to his heavenly father. Today, what would happen if we approached every day living for an audience of one and saying, I am doing everything I'm doing to serve him and to please him and to honor him with everything that I have. I'm going to bless and love others because I'm serving him. I'm going to work hard and obediently, sacrificially with respect and honor, not just with someone's eye on me. I will work sincerely and wholeheartedly because I work for him. I'm not just going to get hung up on what I'm receiving in compensation, knowing that as I work for the Lord, I'm going to receive a reward, an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade that's been kept in heaven for me. And God will reward me in ways that I can't even imagine. What would happen if we took the attitude of Christ and said, I'm just going to do the work that God has for me to do. And I will rest and I will see the value of rest and work in in cooperation with one another. And regardless of my role, I won't see myself more highly than I ought. I will submit myself to his will and to his purpose, loving other people with everything that I have. This has huge implications for our interpersonal relationships if we actually would listen to what God has to say to us today. And that's my prayer right now. And so, Lord, I'm, I just pray right now that, Father, we would hear from you. And, Lord, we would obey this word. Lord, I want to pray that we would bless and serve others through our work. I want to pray that our work would be pleasing to you and honoring to you. Lord, I want to pray that we would show respect to others. We would treat one another fairly. Lord, we would treat one another as brothers. Lord, I reflect back to Onesimus carrying this letter to the Colossae church. Going from slave to brother. And and then in church history, I know that he's referred to as a bishop. Someone who is faithful in service to you going back to a master who is now seeing him as a, as a brother and a fellow believer, someone to be honored and respected. And I just can't help but, but believe from this word that that church in Colossae set the example for what it looks like in our relationships when we love and serve each other well. Lord, help us to be like that. Help us to love you like that to shine Jesus like that. And so whatever role we're in right now, I just want to pray we bring honor to you, Jesus. And that the world can see what it looks like to have our minds set on heaven and not on this world. I pray that our motivation comes from you, not from the sins and the vices that continue to plague us and come at us from this world, from this culture, from Satan himself, and of course from our own evil desires. 
I pray that we would have pure hearts. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. As you stand to your feet today and as we sing, there's going to be some time for reflection even as we sing, but we want to give you a chance to respond as well. And perhaps today is a day of prayer, confession, repentance. Maybe you want to begin a relationship with Jesus and become a part of this church family. We want to give you an opportunity to respond right now. Our prayer team is going to be on the sides of the room. They'd love to pray with you over here on each side and spend some time just praying for you and with you. I'm going to be at Decision Point. I'd love to talk and and speak with you there. And so you can respond as we sing at this time. Thanks for joining us this morning, Northside. Before you go, make sure you check in and let us know you were here. Text the word CHECK to 417-233-1200. If you want to respond to today's service, you can do that online through Decision Point. If you want to know more about baptism or becoming a member, you can request more info at northsidechristianchurch.net slash decision. This is also the place to find out about our life groups, find out what sort of service opportunities there are, or if you just need to get in touch with a minister. And if you're online, you probably use social media too. Make sure you're following along with Northside on our Facebook page, Instagram account, YouTube channel, or Twitter. We are glad that you chose to join us this morning. As we head out for the week, let's make sure we take the love of God with us. Take good care of each other, Northside.